dreaded going to church. And that happened, like many of you, I'm sure, during those college years when you make that transition from the church and the faith that you've been raised in to the church and faith that you must own for yourself. And I think one of my bones of contention, especially during those college years, as I went to any number of different evangelical churches, and of course this was in Canada, but don't look down on Canada too much. There's a lot to look down on in Canada, but with regards to the evangelical churches, I think they were just doing the best that they could. But the bone of contention I had many times when I went to the different churches is they seemed like a poor man's country club. A poor man's country club, a place to go on the weekend to provide Christians with leisure and activity, and you'd have activities for the children, and you'd have activities for the youth, and activities for the seniors, and you'd have activities for every different person, something a little bit for everyone throughout the weekend to keep Christians entertained and to keep them connected. And as time wore on, I increasingly grew disillusioned with this and said, what is this all about? What is the faith all about? What is Christianity all about? What is the church all about? If this is what it is all about, I can get a better concert. I can get a better stadium experience at a Metallica concert. I can get a better, you name it, restaurant, feeding, meal. I can get it all out there. I don't need to come to church For all of these things, including a community and friends. And many times people would say, well, you come for the community. You come for the friends. And I would say, I have friends already. I don't need new friends. That's not why I come to church. And God was so gracious and he was so merciful to me during my medical school years in a dorm room to bring me to the gospel of Matthew. And to allow me to read this gospel through from beginning to end and As God graciously took me through the gospel of Matthew, Matthew points out, and as we've said many times before, what's Matthew writing about? Well, Matthew is writing to show us who Jesus is according to God's word. Who Jesus is according to God's word. That's why he's writing. And he's writing to first century Jewish believers in the early church to show them this is what you're all about. This is what your faith is all about. This is what the household of God is all about. This is what the church is all about. The implication, of course, is if this is not what we're all about, if this is not what the church is all about, if this is not what our faith is all about, we're not a church, we're not the household of God, and we're not Christians, we're something else. Because this is what it's all about. Who Jesus is according to his word. And that's the beauty and grace and the fresh air that Matthew brings into our hearts and to our churches and into our lives. And this is what we so desperately need. And as we come to Matthew chapter 3, this is where John the Baptist is going. He's pointing out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those who have gathered throughout Judea. And he's pointing them out and he's starting to narrow it down and show them, hey, this is what it's all about. This is what the entire Old Testament was all about. The prophets, the law, the Psalms, this is where it's all leading. Who Jesus is according to God's word. And just by way of warming your brains up, I'm going to sort of review just a little bit where we've been in Matthew 1, 2, and 3 before we jump into Matthew 3, partway into John the Baptist's ministry and his preparation for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because it's been a little bit of time. I think it was last on December 26th when I was last here when we were talking about this. So as we go back, and if I could have my first PowerPoint slide, In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, through the genealogy and birth of Jesus of Nazareth, he shows us that according to Scripture, who is Jesus? Jesus is God's new beginning for a world that is dying in its rebellion and its sin. Jesus is God's promised new beginning for his people and also for all of his creation. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he will do what no man can do. He will save his people from their sins. 
And why will he do this? Well, Matthew explains to us, this is because in keeping with God's word, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Christian faith is all about. This is what the household of God is all about. This is what we've been singing with Danny this morning. This is about Christ bringing the very presence of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in us and with us as we gather to meet. And in Matthew 2, it's through the response of the Magi and King Herod to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Matthew goes on to show us that Jesus is a very different kind of king. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. But the Messiah, the king, is a very different type of king. And he's coming to bring a very different kind of kingdom. Now, this is something that we lose sight of in America and our politics. Unlike the kings of this world who conquer and who exploit and who enslave for selfish ambition, Jesus is a ruler who in love has given up everything to shepherd God's people according to his word. And as Jesus flees like a refugee, From Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, he retraces the steps of God's people in the Old Testament. And as he does so, he shows us that according to God's word, he is the good shepherd of Psalm 23 and Isaiah 40. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23 and Isaiah 40. And he's come to lead his people through paths of righteousness and through the valley of the shadow of death and darkness. And he's come to bring his people out of exile. And he's come to bring his people through the waters of the exodus. And he's come to bring them out of the bondage of slavery and sin. And he's come to bring his sheep safely where? Into his house and into his home. So that they can be part of his family and so they can dwell with him forever. But then as we come to Matthew chapter 3, through the message and through the ministry of John the Baptist, God reminds us that according to his word, this Messiah, this shepherd king who is coming, is in fact nothing less than the Lord, Yahweh himself, the Holy One of Israel. He's God. Very specifically, he's the covenant Lord of the Jewish people. He's the one who has spoken throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Well, he has come in person. And this is why God in his mercy has sent his prophet, John the Baptist. Because as promised in Isaiah 40 and 41, and that's the preamble, who is John? He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And who's he crying in the wilderness to make paths straight for? Well, it's the coming of the Lord. It's for the day of the Lord. And the promise as you read the Old Testament prophets is when the Lord comes, there is going to be a reckoning. Because the Lord is holy. He is infinitely greater, infinitely pure, infinitely wonderful, but infinitely holy. He's set apart. He is untainted by sin. And he cannot tolerate sin and he hates wickedness and he hates evil. He is just. And he is merciful. And so the promise as you read through the prophets and you read through Isaiah in particular, you read through and you see, well, when the Lord comes, the day of the Lord comes, judgment and salvation come hand in hand. They come together. There's going to be a reckoning because the Lord is coming to make all things right. That's why there's the talk about straightening crooked paths and and valleys. He's come to make things right in a world that is very, very, very wrong. And when he comes to make things right, there are those who are going to be cared for and who are going to be saved, but there are also those who are going to burn. And God in mercy sends his prophet John the Baptist to call God's people To repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to be baptized for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins from the Lord. To come and plead to the Lord for his mercy and forgiveness and appeal to the Lord to give 
you a completely new life. Why? Because in a short amount of time, it will be too late. And because this is what we so desperately need if we're going to enter into his kingdom. It's not unlike, a little bit, like refugees who gather at the American consulate and plead for asylum. They're willing to give up the entirety of their old life. They're willing up to give, give up the entirety of their old citizenship, their passport, whatever you want. We don't want to stay here. We don't want to be here. We don't want to be a citizen of this country anymore. We want to be Americans. And I'm not saying Americans are Christians. It's an illustration. The point is there are people who are so desperate. It's stay or die or leave or live. And this is what John the Baptist is preaching, except specifically towards the Lord, to the province of Judea, to all the Jewish people. He's coming and saying, you need to start all over again. Your best is not good enough. Who you are, you're worse than Gentiles. You're an offense to the Lord. But the Lord offers amnesty and forgiveness and mercy to those who will place their trust in Him rather than themselves. And it's a most beautiful amnesty and grace that's given. But it's a grace that's given to protect people because when the Lord comes, there's going to be a reckoning. And if you're not ready, there's going to be problems. You need to be ready before it's too late. Why? Well, have a look at Matthew 3, verse 10. Matthew 3, verse 10. And here, John the Baptist is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he's doing so publicly, and he's doing so with the hearing of all who are gathered and for the benefit of everyone who is there. And in verse 10, he says, Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came. From Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold... The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord and it's markedly different from two Specific narratives that have really come to dominate our generation and our time. And those two specific narratives that I want to draw your attention to. Because we live these out on a daily basis. And they shape many of our expectations that trickle into worship and politics and every aspect of our lives. It's the, the Harry Potter narrative and the MCU narrative. The Marvel comic universe. Those are the two Narratives that really, in many ways, have become the narratives of our generation. And they're both dystopian versions of the hero's journey. That begin with the world that we live in as a dark and messed up place. And it's a world that is largely dark and messed up because of the evil and the incompetence and the abuse of adults and our parents. You notice in most of those narratives, it begins with a broken home. It begins with abusive parents or it begins with absent fathers. But then in those narratives from among us, a reluctant savior emerges. And that reluctant savior initially is an innocent child or a teen. Think Peter Parker. And because... 
they get embarked on this hero's journey. And they go down this path of self-discovery. They become set apart to be the chosen one. And together with their family of friends, the Avengers. Together with their family of friends, the ones they choose to hang out with, people like me. Not my biological family, together with their family of friends, the people they choose to roll with, they overcome evil and they save the world. And when you think about that narrative, and we all enjoy that narrative, yours included, right? We enjoy it. Well, why do we enjoy it? Well, when you go through that, you see what's saving people in that fantasy is that the heroes in the world are saved by their experiences, they're saved by their choices, and they're saved by their family of friends. It's an unholy trinity. Our experiences, our choices, and our family of friends. And that might sound remote, brothers and sisters, but by and large, that's what many people are looking for in church. We're looking for a religious experience. We're looking to make choices to have a worship that fits my standard. We're looking for a community. That's one of the big ones. We're here to have, my family didn't work out, so I'm here to have a family of friends. And we see what ends up happening as we go down this path. We see in our society in general, and where we're at right now is, woe to you if you touch someone's experience. Woe to you if you touch someone's choice, whether it be about their sexuality or their gender. Woe to you if you touch someone's family of friends. It's considered to be abuse. You're standing in the way of someone's freedom. And we see that many of the things that have torn churches apart recently, especially over the issue of mass and no mass and where we're at, we're fighting over all of these things. Our choices, our preferences, the experience that we want in church, the family of friends we want to roll with. Take any of the, those things away. Suddenly we no longer have a church. And sadly, brothers and sisters, this is very similar to the narrative that the serpent sold to Adam and Eve in the garden. God is not a good father. He's withholding things from you. His word is only partially true. You need to make your own choices. You need to go on a journey of self-discovery. You need to figure it out on your own. You need to create your own family. You need to save and fix yourself. Because that's what all of this is about. And that's why those narratives appeal to us, brothers and sisters. They show us the ugly things in the world. Yes, we live in a world of broken families. Yes, the world is not right. Yes, there's a lot of heartache and sorrow. And yet it appeals that somehow if you find the right friends and get the right experience and you make the right choices, you can fix all that. And guess what? You can be the chosen one and you can save the world. Well, in Matthew 3, the point John the Baptist is making when he comes out and he proclaims in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's making the point to everybody who's listening, but specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees and then to everyone and the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're like the Marvel comic superheroes. They're the Avengers of the day. They're the top of the heap in Second Temple Judaism. They've memorized the scriptures. They're there at the temple for the sacrifices. They get to wear the great costumes with the great capes. He's pointing out to everyone and to the best of them, he's saying, we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from our sin. We cannot save ourselves from death. And we cannot save ourselves from the coming wrath of God against all sin and all sinners. And the point God is making in Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to argue that this is the big truth for Matthew chapter 3, very simply is this. Where John the Baptist is going is this. Jesus is the Lord we all so desperately need. Jesus is the Lord we all so desperately need to come and to save us. Now I know that sounds remarkably remedial. Aren't we mature Christians? Aren't we way past that? 
If we need Jesus to save us, do we need Jesus to walk with us until he comes? Or do we just need need him to get us through the door and then we're good to go? And this brings us to our very first point this morning. The Lord is salvation. Salvation is from the Lord alone. Can I have my next PowerPoint? This is our, our first point this morning. The Lord is salvation. Salvation is from the Lord alone. And that name, the Lord is salvation, is where we get the Hebrew name Joshua. And in Greek, the name Jesus. The Lord is salvation. Do you get the general idea that the Lord wanted us to get a particular message from the name of his son? Okay? The Lord is salvation. This is basically what John the Baptist's message and his ministry is all about. This is a summation of John the Baptist's ministry. Salvation is from the Lord, not from men, not from priests, not from prophets, not from kings, not from miracle workers. Salvation is from the Lord. And this is a, if you will, a truth that is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And I've listed a whole bunch of them up there for you. From the Psalms through Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. The salvation of the righteous belongs or is from the Lord. And there's a reason the Lord through all of these different prophets says this over and over again. Why? Because salvation is from the Lord. It's not from us. But also because we have this propensity and the children in the Old Testament have this propensity when something great happens, initially it's great, the Lord has saved us. And then after a while, it's, well, we've saved ourselves. We did it. We prayed the right prayers. We offered the right sacrifices. We showed up at the temple. Aren't we great people? And then suddenly, worship becomes about our experience and what we say and do. We forget that worship really is about the presence of God in our midst. It's about his salvation. And so when John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that statement of repent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is we're called to turn away from ourselves. We're called to turn away and and admit we're condemned. We're not worthy to get into the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness is not good enough. And we can't save ourselves. We need to turn to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness and for the gift of salvation. And of course, this is Ephesians as well, right? 2, 8, and 9. That salvation is a gift from the Lord. And it's a gift from the Lord alone. And what was not lost on many who gathered to see and hear John the Baptist was how his message and how his baptism in the River Jordan in the middle of the wilderness was connecting their lives back to two divine acts in the Old Testament that were foundational to the identity of the people of God. The first divine act is the flood where the Lord judges the wicked And he judges the wickedness of the world with what? He judges it with water. But by grace he saves one family. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He saves one family, not because they were great, not because they were good, not because they were better than anyone else. By They found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One family he saves. And how does he save them? He saves them with his word. And how are they saved? By faith, nothing they do, by trusting in the word of the Lord. And it's by faith in God's word and the salvation God gives that they participate, they don't earn, they participate in the salvation of God's word. And they're brought through the waters. And they're brought through the waters to a new beginning and a new life and a new world. Foundational. The second divine event that John the Baptist is connecting the lives of the people who are gathered there with the word of the Old Testament. This is why people came. Because they saw in John the Baptist someone who had just walked right off the pages of the Old Testament and walked right into their lives. The second divine act is the Exodus. Where the Lord judges 
the greatest king and kingdom of that time, Pharaoh and Egypt. And the Egyptians and the children of Israel are given a choice. You repent and you believe that the Lord is the only true God. And he is the only one who can save. And you obey his word and you eat the Passover feast. And you put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And you get ready to leave and get out of town. Or you stay and your firstborn will be killed. You have a choice. And those who by faith say, okay, well, we're going to believe that he is the one true God. We are going to believe that he's not lying, that his word is true. We're going to do as he asks. We're going to eat the lamb. And the lamb's blood will be shed. Those are the people who by faith are brought out of slavery. They're brought out of Egypt. The Lord leads them through the waters and they are brought to the wilderness where the Lord gives them a covenant and he makes them a new people. A new people with whom the Lord himself finds and provides a way to dwell with them, to be with them. And he is their God and they are his people. And if you go back and you read Exodus and you look closely, you'll see it's not just Jews who left on the Exodus. There were also some other foreigners who heard, who saw, and who believed and took their belongings and went along with them. And as you walk through the history of the Old Testament, you'll see among the people of God, you'll see these names that pop up and you'll see that it's not just the Jews, but there are others around who say, hey, something's going on. We believe they've got it and if we stay here, we're going to die. Rahab the harlot. Uriah the Hittite, and the list goes on and on. And together they see salvation is from the Lord. And this is why the Lord gathered his people as his message of salvation to the world. Salvation is from the Lord alone. And he is willing to save the broken, the weak, the humble, the sinful. Those who are willing to say, our only hope of salvation. We're not the superheroes. You're not a superhero. We need the Lord. That message, brothers and sisters, as John the Baptist speaks, is not lost on the people. And that's why they're coming in droves from everywhere. And many are getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Because as they see the bits and pieces come together, they're seeing this is where the story's going. And I don't want to be out of this story. I'm going to leave my story and get back to the one story that's true and the one story that saves. And all of this, brothers and sisters, John the Baptist's ministry, this call to repentance and by faith to believe in the word of the Lord and his promises of salvation. As we've said before, they they bring people back to who we really are. It's a summary of the prophetic word in the Old Testament. And I'm going to take you through a little bit of this just to give you the context of what first century Jews who listened probably connected as they heard John the Baptist speak. And the first passage I want you to consider is Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. I have a summary up there and you know it. It says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And that includes Harry Potter. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And this essentially is John the Baptist's severe warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's coming and making the point to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And many of those who say, well, we're good enough. We offered the sacrifices. We've memorized the scripture. We're hanging out. We're at the top of the heap. Great, we believe the Messiah is coming. Great, we believe there's a God. Great, we believe there's a judgment. Great, we believe there's a kingdom coming. But we're okay. We're good enough. We've done everything we need to do. We're going to be at the front of the line. And as I've said before, there's many believers and Christians who feel exactly the same way. We're good to go. And John the Baptist, when he talks about a tree getting cut down and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says, it's not just about what you do, brothers and sisters. 
It's not just about what you've memorized. It's not just about what you say. It's about who you are. John the Baptist is coming out and saying, who you are isn't good enough. Who you are is not good enough. Now what's also worth noting, brothers and sisters, is John the Baptist is speaking here initially to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's then speaking to everybody who's gathered. And among those who are gathered are also those who are not Pharisees and Sadducees on the one hand. They are people who are very enamored with the spectacle of John the Baptist's ministry. They're enamored with the power and authority of this man who's speaking. They're enamored with the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. They're enamored by the crowds who gather. They're enamored by the conviction of sin that is happening. They're enamored by a religious movement. Why do I say that? And what's my basis for saying that? Well, as you go and read the other Gospels, all which give an account of John the Baptist's ministry, and you go to John chapter 3, what ends up happening is as Jesus' ministry later starts to take off, some of John the Baptist's disciples come and they're a little wigged out. Why? Why are all these people going after Jesus? They're actually jealous of Jesus' ministry. Now, when we get jealous of someone else's religious experience, what does that demonstrate about us in our heart? Who are we thinking about? Are we thinking about the Lord? We're thinking about us. God's jealousy is about what rightly belongs to the Lord. But our jealousy is what we think we deserve and what we want, but we're not getting. And so we see among John's disciples, there are those where what they've fallen in love with is their leader in the movement. And as we go to the other Gospels, we see that some of the questions that are on everyone's mind for John the Baptist as this event and this movement is happening is the question they ask John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They want to know as they see all this, are you the one God has promised to lead us into the kingdom? Are you the chosen one? Or at least someone close to the chosen one. Now brothers and sisters. Today in the church. We see the same two extremes. And everything in the middle. We have those who feel that. They know enough of the Bible. They've been to seminary. They've preached sermons. They're pastors. They're good to go. And we have those on the other extreme. Who are looking for a religious experience. And we get drawn to stadiums and we get drawn to promise keepers and we get drawn to these events and we get drawn to all of the other things that come when people gather. And this includes, brothers and sisters, I'm going to say this. Even Shepherd's Conference. There can be that moment. And it's not that we're not to enjoy the blessing of coming together as the people of God and worshiping the Lord. But I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, oh, the Holy Spirit was really present. Well, how do you know? Do you have a Holy Spirit meter every time you go to Shepherd's Conference? And it goes, shh. Right? And then, and I've seen men come and say, how are you doing spiritually? Well, we went to Shepherd's Conference, or we went to Sing Conference, or we went to this. And, it was just, and, it, and, and then see them a week later sin terribly against the word of the Lord. And say, whatever it was that you experienced, or whoever it was you were praying to, it wasn't the Lord. I don't think. Because we don't bless the Lord out of one mouth, and we don't go and curse the other day, or out of the other side of our mouth. When we look at that continuum, brothers and sisters, there are two sides of the same coin. We're looking for the works and the efforts and the accomplishments and the experiences of men to give us some sort of experience of God. 
And they always fall short. And they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. That's why we were never meant to live at retreat for the rest of our lives. And in verse 11 and 12, John the Baptist addresses this as he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist is coming and saying, hey, it's not me. And that's why you need to worry. And that's why you need to make some changes. The one you need is someone who is stronger, more powerful, and holier than the greatest of all prophets, than Moses, than John the Baptist, than John MacArthur and John Piper. You need something more than just water. You need to be changed. And you need someone who can change who you are. And the good news of God's word and John the Baptist's ministry is this is exactly who God has promised and this is who is coming. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord must change sinners to save sinners. The Lord must change sinners to save sinners. What separates the Lord's salvation from the salvation of men is that the Lord's salvation is about something far greater than people gathering and saying and doing certain things. The Lord's salvation is about something greater than gathering and feeling bad about your sin. The Lord's salvation is about something greater than a religious and mystical experience. The Lord's salvation is about remaking us into His image according to His Word. It's about a radical transformation from inside out, where sinners are transformed into saints. For what purpose? Well, it's because the Lord loves His people and His desires to dwell with them. And with the words in verse 11, I myself baptize you with water for repentance, but He... But he, John the Baptist, is showing this very sharp contrast and the limits of his ministry and his message. And he's showing us that the one we need is someone greater than the greatest. We need the Lord himself. Because only the Lord is able to change us and save us. Only the Lord is able to remake a person from the inside out. And so when he says, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, he's pointing out someone who is infinitely greater and more powerful than the greatest of prophets and than the greatest men who are filled with the most Holy Spirit. We think of all the charismatic gatherings where you come to be filled with the Spirit. Well, John the Baptist is saying you need more than this. He talks about someone whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's talking about the need for someone who is infinitely holier than we are. When he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, he's talking about something that no man can do. So all of those folks who say that you're going to an event to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it ain't coming from God's word. These words that John the Baptist is saying, and he's describing who's coming after him, they all come from God's word in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1.4 Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. First seven chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah is telling the people, Your very DNA, the core of who you are, you're the offspring of evildoers. Genetically, you can't get it right. You're not good enough. You can't fix your problem. You, by nature, will always do what is offensive to the Lord. And then in Isaiah 6, Isaiah discovers, guess what? I'm that way too. And when does he discover it? He realizes he's so blind he doesn't see it until he comes into the presence of the Lord. And then as he comes into the presence of the Lord, he says, woe is me. 
I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah, brothers and sisters. So the testimony of the Old Testament as you walk through is, hey, listen. We need a complete redo. And what is it that saves Isaiah? Well, it's the Lord who does. As he takes a hot coal from the altar, fire, and puts it on Isaiah's lips, and he purifies him with fire. And that's the only thing that makes Isaiah fit for ministry. Then in Jeremiah 13.23, Jeremiah says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots. Then also. You can do good. Who are accustomed to do evil. So Jeremiah is coming and telling people. Hey. And this is really the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. For all your shenanigans. And all your offerings. And all your sacrifices. You can't change who you are. Who you are. And what you are can't make yourself good, can't make you right with God, and can't save anyone, beginning with ourselves. And Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah goes on, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And he's pointing out, God's people, God's people, so broken, so enslaved, so hardened by sin and pride and unbelief and idolatry, That they need a salvation that no man, no prophet, no superhero can give. They need a completely new heart. They need a completely new life. They need a completely new identity. They need a completely new beginning. And the good news of the Old Testament prophets is that to all who stop trusting in themselves, And the things of this world and the kings of this world. And instead are willing to humble themselves. And trust in the Lord. And his promise of salvation. The Lord promises to give exactly what we so desperately need. A change from the inside out. And so we read in Ezekiel 11.19. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. And Ezekiel doesn't say this just once. He says it twice. Have a look at Ezekiel 36 verse 25. Ezekiel 36 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you ever struggle with obeying the Lord? We gather together, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? What do we need to do to run a church? What do we need to do to preach? What do we need to be better? Well, the Lord's pointing out here in Ezekiel, what we need, he will do. He will put his very spirit in us. He will give us a new heart and a new life. We need the very presence of the Lord himself in us. Because only the Lord is strong enough to forgive and purify and conquer Our sin, our sinfulness, and our death. And the beauty of the Old Testament and the prophets is as much as there is judgment, there is this good news. The Lord will do it. But there's only one person who does it. It's the Lord. And this is what John the Baptist is referring to. When in verse 11 he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier, more powerful than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's talking about the salvation and the complete transformation of God's recreation of a sinner into a child of God that is entirely a work of the Lord. 
And it's shortly after John the Baptist says these words in verse 13. That Matthew then writes, then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And the implication here from the word that he uses in the Greek is, this is a fulfillment and a completion of all that the Lord had promised. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Jesus is the Lord and Savior we all so desperately need. Jesus is the Lord and Savior we all so desperately need. In Exodus, when Moses encounters the Lord for the first time, how does he encounter the Lord? Do you recall? Wendy, you're our guest this morning. You're our Old Testament expert. You're going to jog our memory and remind us? He encounters a burning bush in the wilderness. Does he not? And when he encounters that burning bush in the wilderness and he sees that burning bush and it catches his attention, what catches his attention is this bush or this tree that burns, but it is never consumed. And that bush or that tree that burns with fire but is never consumed or burned up, the Lord uses as a sign and symbol of his holy presence that he is present there. And he uses it as a sign and symbol of what's holy. How the Lord comes into creation, something he's created, and something that should be destroyed by his holiness. And he changes and transforms. And it burns with the fire of the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of God. And yet it is not burned. And it's through this sign and symbol that he speaks to Moses and he unfolds what his plan is. A plan of salvation so that the Lord himself can dwell in the midst of his people. So that his presence can be with them. So that the Lord will be their salvation, their light and their love and their guide. So that they will become a new people who are lit on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fire of the Lord. And they are not burned, but they are a sign to the nations. Salvation is from the Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the tabernacle was meant to be a sign of. The dwelling place of the Lord. Pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. That's what the temple was meant to point towards. And it points towards another tree that is lit on fire by the justice and mercy of the Lord, where the power of God works in frailty and weakness and changes what should be burned and destroyed, but instead makes it a dwelling place of the light and love of God. Brothers and sisters, what John the Baptist is saying is, you need the Lord in you. He needs to come and this is what all of the Old Testament was about, is the Lord is laying away and making a provision so that the Lord himself can dwell with his people, so that you can be someone who is not filled with the spirit of this world, filled with sin, filled with the flesh, filled with your pride and your idols, but you are someone who is filled with the very spirit and fire of the one true God. And I believe in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is pointing out, this is what a believer is. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what the church is. It is the household of God where the spirit of Christ dwells because he has done what no man could do. He has done what no superhero can do. He has done what John MacArthur can't do. Mark Chin can't do. John Piper can't do. And nobody can do. He has come and paid the price so that you can burn with the fire of the Holy Spirit and the holiness of God and not be consumed. And the good news of John the Baptist's message is for the weak and for the broken and those enslaved by sin and those who are downtrodden. The Lord is able to do what no man can do. What does the Apostle Paul say? To the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in what? In church? In Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose? In Grace Community Church? No. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, our goal is not to fix you or change you because we can't do that. It's simply to point you to the one who must change you. The one who can change you. The one who desires to change you. So that he can save you for himself. And he can be with you. Do you know this Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus. What we so desperately need is the salvation that you bring. And all too often Lord Jesus we have settled for second best. A church experience. A moment or a minute. A retreat or a pastor, when what we really need, Lord Jesus, is you. And so we would say, Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Change us and fill us, Lord Jesus, with your spirit and with your fire. And may we know the fullness of your light and your love and your goodness and grace that takes the worst of sinners, the most weakened of people, And enables us and empowers us to be what we could never be on our own, a child of God. In your name we pray, amen.